Good to say hello to one another again. There may be somebody else you can greet just while um, we're transitioning, and then we'll get going again. Okay, so um, my name's Matthew, by the way, I'm, I'm the lead pastor here. So welcome again, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us on Zoom as well. We're really glad you're here. Um, and we are in week two of Lent. It's the second Sunday of Lent. We're in a series called Heart Cries from the Cross, where we're looking at the progressively at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, um, sayings that have been treasured by followers of Jesus for centuries. Um, uh, they've been studied, they've been meditated upon, reflected upon, and we're trying to do um, that during this series. Um, and rather, um, you know, as we said last week, rather than perhaps trying to analyze them so much uh, and determine what do they mean, we're really trying to reflect on them and meditate on them in a way that God can speak to us and let them kind of read us, if you like, um, as, we, as we look at them. Um, today, we're going to look at the second saying because it's the second Sunday of Lent. <laughs> you know, there's some order here. Um, it's another saying from uh, the uh, Gospel of Luke. You may remember last week we looked at Jesus saying, the first saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this second saying comes um, hot on the heels of that quite soon after that. So let's just look at it now, if we can put up the first, first scripture. Um, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's the second saying. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that word paradise um, so having said, we're not going to try and analyze these things too much. We are going to have a little look at them. OK, we're going to sort of and then we're going to reflect on. them. Um, so I'm going to tell you exactly what they mean. And then you can reflect on my um, you know, intelligent, um, articulate um, message. Not OK. You know that if you've been here coming along enough, you'll know that's not going to be the case. Um, no. So we just let's just look at this a little bit because. Um, that word paradise is often, and I think traditionally, uh, uh, the majority view is Jesus is talking about heaven. So today you will be with me in heaven. And this has been 
a, a, a scripture used to illustrate the fact that um, doesn't matter how you've lived your life. If you if you um, uh, repent and confess your sins and profess faith in Jesus, even on your deathbed, they, then you'll go to heaven like this this criminal in this in this instance. And I'm not wanting to say that's wrong or or it's um, inaccurate. I mean, that's one interpretation. But I'm not sure it's necessarily. Well, perhaps we miss something if that's our overlying. Uh, interpretation there might be something profound that we're missing and the reason I'm wondering that is because Jesus uses this word paradise he chooses not to use the word that he uses elsewhere for heaven um, the, the word paradise paradisos in the original Greek language is a, it's actually got a, a Persian origin and it means garden or sanctuary it has connotations of peace and harmony um, and wholeness and goodness and that's what that's the word that Jesus is choosing here. It gets used in other parts of the Bible. Um, actually, you can uh, in the Hebrew Bible, this same word is used in Genesis. Um, uh, yeah, Genesis two. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there and that's the word. OK, that's the word. Uh, same word, paradisos. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden the paradise, where the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. So that's the Hebrew creation myth using that word. Now, obviously, Genesis was written in the Hebrew language, not the Greek language. But if you read the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, which is you know, a few centuries before Jesus, it got translated into the Greek language because that was the predominant uh, language used then a version called the Septuagint. Um, and that word in the Greek used for paradise or that garden is paradisos. Now we also get, and, and it's interesting to note actually that um, however you interpret the beginning of Genesis, you know, I, I personally take a more metaphorical, mythological view of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, but whether you take it literally or not, it's certainly in the, um, the inference is that this is a physical material creation. Right. It's not some abstract um, heavenly place. It's an earthly place. I mean, that's it's the creation of the earth. So it has something rooted in our reality, our material reality. That's the that's the connotation there, I think. Um, at the right. At, so that's at the beginning of the Bible. Right at the end of the Bible, the word is also used again. Paradisos in the Greek and in, in Revelation, uh, if you could look at that one. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is a message to the church at Ephesus. Um, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That same word. So there's a sort of connotation again of this this paradise, this this um, ideal being something that's in the future, something that's um, to look forward to, something something beautiful. But it's kind of rooted in that creation story. It has this these creative material connotations about it. Um, there are some more abstract uses of the word. Um, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this about an experience that maybe he had. He seems to be talking about somebody else, but a lot of people think he's probably referring to himself. I must go on, I, I must go on boasting, although there was nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, but that could be him, maybe not, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven where it was in the body, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. 
So it's an unusual experience. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, this repeats himself, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So there is this sense of it being perhaps a higher understanding, a higher consciousness, an understanding of a higher reality, um, that there is that connotation to it. And it sounds very much like what the Hebrews called shalom or, or peace, um, that there was this hope for wholeness and unity and harmony in the world. And in fact, the, um, the prophets, the ancient Hebrew prophets would talk about this future state of the, the earth being renewed and, and uh, um, humanity being reconciled and, and all things being good. Um, in, in fact, it's interesting to, to note that Jesus frequently suggests, even says, that his life and what he's doing amongst the people in his time was bringing that kind of paradise, paradise alive. He, he used the term the kingdom of God. Um, when there's a passage in Isaiah, for instance, where it talks about um, the future state being like a garden, just a beautiful, fertile garden. And in that garden, the um, uh, lame people walk and blind people see there's healing going on. And when um, John the Baptist, um, who's been incarcerated, and um, this is before he was executed, beheaded, but he's in prison and he's wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? Because, you know, if Jesus is the Messiah, what, how come I'm in prison? This doesn't seem to be working out. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and Jesus says to them, the, what do you see? The, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking. Um, and he says, go back and tell John. In other words, he's saying, look, that paradise is coming into fruition through what I'm doing. Um, and that's his that's his message to John, that he's the one. He is he is the Messiah. So this sense of paradise seems to be uh, when Jesus chooses to use that word, it's, he seems to be talking about something more in the present, more in this reality, rather than an escape to another reality. And, and, and as we often talk about, as we'll explore a little bit today, Jesus as savior is about redeeming and, and reconciling our lives in this life rather than saving us and rescuing us and taking us somewhere else where everything will be okay. It's, it's a much more difficult enterprise, I think, in many respects. Now, let's just hit the pause button there for a second and talk a little bit, though, about heaven and hell, because um, I don't want to just dismiss out of hand the, uh, some of those traditional interpretations, but also to talk a little bit about some of the struggles we have with these interpretations when we make it just about going to heaven or being removed from earth into some other kind of reality that we call heaven. Um, and part of the, tr the struggle here is that, believe it or not, it's an issue of punctuation. Um, the, in the Greek language, it was certainly in the way that the, the manuscripts were written um, in ancient times, um, there weren't, there wasn't punctuation. In fact, there weren't even spaces between words. Um, so, you know, um, translation can be a bit of a challenge. Now, in um, our Bibles, the one that we've, we've, the version we just read, let me put the next slide up, uh, please. Um, we have, it, um, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that interpretation puts the comma after truly I tell you and puts today day with the latter part of that sentence. So in other words, if you interpret that and, and, you, and it's about heaven, that has Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to be in heaven today, what we call Good Friday, and you'll be with me there. And some people, in terms of an interpretation of the afterlife, have a problem with that because did Jesus really go to heaven? Well, I mean, it becomes a question of where is Jesus 
between the time he died and the time he came back from the dead. And there's a huge amount of debate about this in theological circles. Um, I don't know whether that's something that's ever crossed your mind. Have you thought about it? But um, obviously not. <laughs> but um, it's all to do with that. It's all to do with that comma, um, because Jesus seems to be saying, "Today you'll be with me in heaven," and that means Jesus must have gone to heaven. But then it's like, well, how come Jesus ascended into heaven later? So how can he be in heaven? At, um, you know, after he's died, and 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 then there's also a view that Jesus, when he died, didn't go to heaven. He went to hell, um, and you get um, the interpretation here. We put the comma in a different place. Let's look at the next slide. There, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, the today part is associated with the first part of the sentence. In other words, I'm telling you today. And when you look at G Jesus says, truly, I tell you many times, you know, we probably might be familiar with it as the verily, verily, I say unto you, you know, in the old King James version where Jesus uses that kind of language. Jesus uses that kind of language a lot. And some people would say he never says very, verily, I say unto you today. But then some would say, well, he does occasionally. You know, so it's like we have this. Um, where does the comma go? <laughs> right? And I don't think that's the point, really. I don't think when, G you know, Jesus is, is making a saying, it's not an issue of punctuation. However, it does illustrate the fact that um, we, we've kind of got a, a little bit stressed out about heaven and hell and trying to define it and trying to, trying to you know, define where does the comma go? Where, what, what does it all mean? Where did Jesus go? Where, where was Jesus in that 36 to 40 hours or so before, after he died? before he came back from the dead. And what is heaven about? What is hell about? And we, we get these sort of notions of, um, like even the people who would say Jesus went to heaven, it's like he didn't really go to proper heaven. He went to a sort of a pre-heaven, a sort of a holding space. And that's where the criminal went with him as well. And, and there's, a, um, there's a story actually in Luke's gospel a little bit earlier about Lazarus and a rich man. And um, uh, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. Um, is the is the literal interpretation of where he goes to, which sounds a bit weird, right? Uh, you know, I remember my parents saying, you know, when when we all die, we go to Abraham's bosom, and then when Jesus comes back, we'll all go to heaven proper. And I was like, I'm not sure I want to go to Abraham's bosom, particularly, you know, as a kid. I mean, it just seems a little bit strange, but I don't think we're meant to take it literally because Jesus is telling a story. It's also a story in which he says somebody goes to hell. Um, the rich man goes to hell, but the word there for hell is Hades, which is the Greek underworld. So he's using a very, what people would have understood and known to tell this story. It was very, I don't think Jesus is saying, actually, the Greeks absolutely had their mythology right. And Hades is exactly how it happens. I don't think Jesus is saying that. I don't think anybody in the room, or any of us would, would think that either. Right. So, um, but out of that has come a sense of layers of heaven. There's sort of, um, you know, there's just sort of this pre-heaven and there's a certain level of heaven and there's the third heaven you know we heard um, Paul use that kind of metaphorical language earlier and we perhaps try to make it literal likewise with hell there's a view that Jesus um, went to hell after he died um, some of that comes from a section in first Peter one of the letters in the Christian scriptures where it talks about Jesus going to prison after he died he goes into a prison into a dungeon and, and preaches to spirits um, you, you can read that if you like but it, you know again it's like it's very hard to make sense of that and he doesn't actually say he goes to hell um, in second Peter there's language about hell using a word Tartarus which is um, you know, a, a sort of another Greek word for, for hell, um, assuming layers of hell, there's sort of sections to hell and you sort of can progress through hell. And I think probably in many respects, we've developed our theories of the afterlife, for want of a better term, 
um, through certain scriptures that are perhaps more metaphorical than literal or, or are intended or even told, like Jesus tells a story. You know, he's telling stories. He's not sitting people down and saying, let me tell you exactly what's going to happen when you die. He's telling a story to illustrate a point, really a point about how we live in this life. Um, but we've taken some of the scriptures and we've also taken a lot of extra biblical, non-biblical writings, um, like, for instance, Dante's Divine Comedy, which really flushes out the layers of hell and, and has purgatory and then layers of heaven. I mean, has anybody ever read Divine Comedy? I mean, beautiful. I mean, just phenomenal literature kind of defined the modern Italian language in a way that Shakespeare had defined um, modern English in many respects. So, I mean, just a beautiful thing, but um, clearly metaphorical, allegorical, rather than to be taken literally. But it's formed in so many ways the way we think about the afterlife. And um, I think when we, when we look at Jesus, though, and listen to Jesus, Jesus is, is far less clear about it. Um, when he talks about hell, he talks about Hades, as I mentioned uh, just now, uh, referencing the Greek underworld. Um, he also uses a word Gehenna, which we, we said here before was actually a reference to a stinking, fetid, burning dump outside the walls of Jerusalem, um, which also had really gross, appalling, horrendous connotations for the Jewish people um, because of their history, because it was used as a place of, um, of human sacrifice historically. And Jesus uses that term, which gets interpreted hell in many English versions of the, of the Bible, um, really to illustrate what's the anti anti antithesis, uh, what's antithetical to the kingdom of God. Okay, what, in other words, he would talk about his way, the way of life, the way of the kingdom, the way of paradise, if you like. Um, and the opposite way was the way of Gehenna. It's the, it's the dump, the stinking, burning, horrendous life, if you like, that... Um, that, and that was the way Jesus used that metaphor, used that il illustration. And people would have known exactly what he meant when he, when he used that, that term. So Jesus, when he talks about heaven, he talks about mansions and banquets and feasts and weddings and, and, and that kind of thing, which obviously are metaphorical. But we, I think, in our, we, we connect the dots. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We sort of fill in the gaps. And again, nothing wrong with that at all. I think we fill in the gaps because... We want, we want to know, we want to be more certain about what happens after we die. Um, and, and that's because we've lost people and we, we grieve the loss of people. And it's because we, 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 we perhaps want to know that there's got to be more than this. Um, we want to feel that we have meaning beyond just the brief time that we spend um, on this planet. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. But we do, I think, have to recognize that we're, we're, to some degree, making things up, right? And I don't say, I mean, I do it as well. Um, so when it comes to where was Jesus after he died, before he rose from the dead, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, and, I, and I don't want to pretend that I do. And I don't want to think it's all about where the comma goes. Or, and if we, you know, we, as long as we get the comma in the right place, then we've, we've got it all sorted out. Just as I'm not exactly sure what hap happens after we die. You know, but we, but we, we, we're, I, what I do believe is that the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the kind of paradise, if you like, that Jesus is living for and creating and renewing is something that transcends death. That, that death is not the end, that, that we, we, 
actually live eternal life with Jesus, the, the very life of Christ. Um, what we can say about what Jesus says about the future and about heaven is that heaven is not something we escape to when we die. Heaven is not something, it's not God's rescue plan. Rather, heaven is what's is that life, that paradise, that kingdom of God coming to our earth, coming into our reality. It's not us going to heaven so much as it is heaven coming to us. And Jesus says, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we have in our vision statement, we're, we're a community that dares to dream on he of heaven on earth. Because sometimes it's, in, it's very hard to even think that that's possible. That's an ima even imaginable. Um, it, going back to Revelation, a book about the future in many respects, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new, a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully, beautifully dressed for her husband. Lots of metaphorical language here again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who has, was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. We were just singing that. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. So in other words, even in the, the, the visionary dream of Revelation, um, again, which I think is very metaphorical. The, the direction is heaven coming to earth and a renewal of the earth rather than a destruction of the earth and, a, and an escape to heaven. That seems to be consistent with Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. So I, I share that because I, I, I think possibly when we hear this saying of Jesus, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If we make it about heaven or heaven and hell, if we make it about the afterlife, it's not necessarily wrong. I'm not trying to say that. And again, this is just, these are just my thoughts. This is my opinion. But we might be missing something else. We might be missing out on something. And so let's just explore some of, more of this saying and what, what else it might be saying to us. And to do that, let's go back to the text. And in particular, let's look at... The criminals, right? The criminals that are on the cross with Jesus. Luke calls them criminals. Now, just put a little uh, chart here together because the, the, um, all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, vary in how they tell the story of the last part of Jesus's life about uh, what happens before he dies, how he dies, his resurrection. I mean, they're overall consistent. I don't think there's any cause for alarm. It's like if we, you know, if, if we ask any three or four people who leave this service afterwards, you know, what happened in the service today, we'd probably get slightly different opinions, right? Um, uh, you know, we, we see and hear and interpret things differently. Um, so there's no cause for alarm, but, um, you know, Matthew calls, um, the, the, they all include the, these criminals. Though. There, there's a mention in all the Gospels of these criminals. In other words, Jesus was not crucified alone. So um, Matthew calls them thieves, a little bit more specific than Luke. Um, Luke just calls them criminals. We don't know what crime they've committed. Um, and they both insult Jesus. Okay, so there's a little bit of difference here. They both, it says they heap insults upon Jesus. Um, Mark um, uses exactly the same language. Now, most scholars would say, 
the Gospel of Mark was written first. Uh, most people agree on that. Most scholars agree on that. And then Matthew and Luke had Mark. Um, and so Hugh, they refer to Mark a lot. So uh, it's almost like they're starting points. There's, there's huge parts of Matthew and Luke that are word for word the same um, as Mark's gospel. And then each of Matthew and Luke had some, some differences. There's some, they they um, develop the stories a little bit. But Matthew chooses, or the author of Matthew chooses to um, correlate exactly with Mark about the, the, the thieves. They, they're, they're thieves. There's two of them. They both insult Jesus. Luke takes a different direction, right? He calls them criminals, but he draws them out. So suddenly they emerge from the page. They emerge from the text as personalities. They're not just a um, couple of thieves they, and they both insult Jesus. And there's no quote or anything like that. But in this one, um, there's, a thief, one uh, there's a criminal who says something very negative about Jesus and there's a there's a criminal who says something very positive about Jesus. He draws them out. The the, the author draws them out. Now, um, John um, just refers to them as um, there were two others cru uh, crucified with him. Um, no mention of their crimes or why they were being crucified, and they don't say anything. It, it doesn't even reference them insulting Jesus. It just says there were two others. Um, um, now, all the gospels, though, it's interesting, make a point of saying. So, in each account, they make a point of saying. Jesus was in the middle, and we heard that in that when we read the text just now. One on the right, one on the left. So it begs some questions, I think, this passage, because of some of the differences. And we're looking at the section in Luke, remember. Why do all the gospel writers make a particular point of Jesus being in the middle? And why does Luke draw out this story um, and actually... I mean, to some degree, contradict the others because he's saying one of them says something that's not at all insulting, whereas the others that say anything about what they say say they both insult Jesus. What's going on here? Why? I think it's a big question here. Why is Jesus in the middle? And now it could be just, well, Jesus is, it, this story is about Jesus. I wonder if what's going on here is, and it's related here, I think, to the word paradise, to the kingdom of God, to, to the kind of healing that Jesus is bringing. Jesus is in the middle. Jesus is in the middle of the brokenness of humanity. Right? He's being crucified in the middle between two criminals. And if we think of, we don't know what they've done, but if we think of Perhaps the criminals representing the brokenness of humanity, the fact that we mess up and we, 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 we've messed up our lives, we've messed up other people's lives, we, we have broken relationships, we're messing up the planet. You think of all the things that, that negative things that humanity have done, not that humanity only does negative things, but there's Jesus being crucified as one of those. There's Jesus in the middle identifying with humanity and the brokenness of humanity. But also, not only that, identifying with the brokenness of humanity's remedy for its brokenness. So if you think about it, here's what's happening here. These criminals who have done something wrong are being executed. That's punishment is one way we try to renew the earth. We try to make people better by punishing. 
Um, and if you do something wrong, there's a punishment. Um, and, uh, you know, punishment can perhaps be a deterrent. Punishment can get rid of bad people. Um, but it's, it's, it's failed, right? Our, our, our efforts to produce a paradise, to produce a perfect society, to, to live that kind of reconciled, whole, healed, um, shalom-like um, society and, and life have failed miserably. And you, here we have um, criminals being executed because of what they've done wrong. And that is, that's humanity's remedy. And there's Jesus in the middle of all that. But rather than punishing, Jesus is loving. So Jesus is turning things upside down. So here, so, and, and I think it's, it's important here to see um, now the difference between the two criminals. Because there's Jesus in the middle of it all as a king. Ironically called the king of the Jews by, by um, the Romans, perhaps. Um, but we would see Jesus acting like a king, the, the king of this kingdom, the king of this paradise, the leader of this paradise, the, the, the um, reconciler within this paradise. And here's Jesus, not one who comes to punish, but one who comes to love even to the point of, of, of death, even to the point of being executed like a criminal. It's all upside down. It's all turned around. Jesus, what Jesus is doing, what makes Jesus the savior here is the fact that Jesus is willing to trust the way of love, trust the way of his father, even though he prays, God, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to have to go down this road to the cross. He trusts that this way is ultimately redemptive, that the, if we go on exchanging violence for violence, if somebody does something wrong and then we just punish them, it deals with something in the moment, but it's not healing. It's not redemptive. It's not ultimately going to heal the human condition. And Jesus is coming in for, for, for a whole different purpose. Jesus is coming in here to save the world. And you can see how how antithetical this is, how it doesn't, it, it, at one level, it, do, it just doesn't make sense. You know, you have um, the Romans, for instance, are punishing people. I mean, partly because they can, they're, they're like, that's what oppressors do, right? That oppressors, um, if you don't do, if you don't do what we're, we're telling you to do, uh, if you don't comply, then you will be punished. Um, it's also probably that Romans think they're bringing peace. They're bringing prosperity to um you know that's what if that's what power does to you you start thinking that you're fantastic you know britain we thought we went all over the world with the british empire thinking like oh this will be good for everybody um but actually it's oppressive and it, we may think we're doing some good and, and by you know bringing in our laws and bringing in this that and the other but ultimately it's oppressive that's if you like the way of Rome, that's the way of humanity. That's the, that's the default way of, of humanity. It's about power and control. Whereas Jesus is coming in with the way of love, which overcomes that fear and undermines that fear and overcomes it in a way that brings the whole thing down, potentially, if we would join in with it, if we would have courage and confidence to join in and participate in it. But that's where, that's where the struggle comes. And we see that struggle illustrated with the two thieves that Luke draws out in this, in this narrative. The one thief says, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. In other words, he is saying, just like the 
religious authorities. Well, save us then, if you're so, if you're so great. Save us. If you're the Messiah, save us. They, when Jesus was hailed coming into Jerusalem, people were shouting out, Hosanna, you know, save us. God, save us. Jesus is going to save us. The implication, I think, is Jesus is going to save us from the power of Rome. Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. And, and anybody worth their salt needs to be able to save in that kind of way. Whereas Jesus is talking about, oh, no, I've, I've come with a completely different agenda. This is an agenda of love. I'm going to undermine fear and hatred and violence through love, not through conquering and just perpetuating violence. I'm not going to redeem the world. I'm not going to reconcile the world by just doing Rome better than Rome does it. I'm coming to change everything. And the thief, one of the thieves just doesn't, he, he's like, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. And, I, and he's, he's, on, he's repeating what the religious authorities say. And there's a certain irony in that they hand him over to that power that they want to be overthrown in order to have him executed. So, I mean, so much irony in this story. There's also irony in the second thief, second criminal. I should call him a criminal because we're in Luke's account who says, um, Jesus has done nothing wrong. He rebukes the other uh, criminal and says, Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus is innocent. Um, and he echoes, ironically, the words of Rome. Pilate says, this man has done nothing wrong. But they still clamor for his, his execution. They clamor for his execution because the, he's talking both um, it, madness, you know, it, not retaliate, not not. What do you mean love in the face of all this power and aggression? And I think because it's it sounds madness and also it's just so hard. It's so it's, how can you imagine that even working? How can I imagine myself participating in that? It feels so risky, so vulnerable. Um, but this thief on the cross, it's as though, sorry, he's a criminal. <laughs> this criminal on, on the cross is as though at his point of death and his point at this moment of vulnerability, he sees Oh, Jesus is about, he's, it's, he, he seems to see what Jesus is doing, the miracle of what Jesus is doing, the mystery of what Jesus is doing, bringing a paradise into our world that we can all participate in. And he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. It's, all, it's a heart cry. It's, you know, we, we're talking, this series is about heart cries from the cross. Well, Jesus' heart cry is, is one thing. This is a heart cry from the, from the, the thief. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus responds and says, today you will be with me in this kingdom, this paradise, this reality that you can barely imagine because that's what's happening right now. Love is, love is winning. I, I, could, I could stop loving and retaliate and fight, but that's not the way that's going to bring redemption. That's not the way that's going to bring healing. Now, I think with Jesus, we feel that, Je that Jesus knows that, right? Because Jesus knows he's going to come back from the dead. And, um, you know, the scriptures, certainly the gospel accounts, often have Jesus um, saying things like, you know, I'm going to be killed and on the third day I'll rise again. Um, and maybe Jesus did know that. Maybe Jesus did know he's coming back from the dead. I personally, and again, just a personal opinion, I'm not so sure actually, because I think the, the Gospels were written retrospectively, right? So they're written, cent um, not centuries, decades after uh, Jesus. And they're written by people who knew the whole story. Um, 
So, and I, I just wonder whether some of the accounts of Jesus being so explicit about coming back to life um, have been sort of told retrospectively because the writers know he did come back to life. Um, but think about it like this. If I said to you, um, look, I think I'm going to die within sometime in the next three years, but you know what? I'm going to come back to life. Um, I think you would remember that. If I, if I said that repetitively and clearly, I and then I died, somebody's going to think, hey, didn't, do you remember he said he was going to come back to life? Um, and in the gospel accounts, we have no sense whatsoever that anybody was even thinking about Jesus coming back from the dead. It's total surprise. They weren't expecting it. They demoralized it. They're defeated. Nobody, no, there's no reference to anybody saying, well, do you remember he said he was going to come back from the dead? And, and I'm reading into things a little bit here, but I, I wonder, that could be because, you know, I think we've, we've interpreted that as, well, the disciples were all a bit stupid. They didn't really get it. But maybe Jesus wasn't quite so explicit. Because Jesus, as a human being like you and me, um, perhaps had to trust more in this way. Um, and so that's why when he's praying, Father, I don't want to go through this. And he sweats like drops of blood. He's genuinely afraid. And then he says, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, not, not your plan that I know is all worked out. You know, I have to you know it's another plan of punishment you know you punish me and then you can forgive everybody else no it's not it's not all worked out it's like would you go even through with death um for the sake of love which is and that's the father's heart right that's the father's heart um i'm not i'm so i i wonder and that's why we, we, we remember we looked at luke luke's gospel a few um few months ago um let's just look at a couple of couple of times where jesus I think has this sense of foreboding at that time. So he's, he's heading towards Jerusalem. So he's out in, in, in being in Galilee. He's heading towards Jerusalem. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox that I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal. That's one of those ones where, you know, it's sort of an inference of the third day resurrection, perhaps. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's Jesus compassionately thinking about this place he's going to. That's probably going to kill him. And he's, he's conscious that the cycle of violence is ultimately going to bring about more desolation to, to Jerusalem. If, the, if they don't accept this way of peace, power will, will win. Violence will win. And he seems to be referring to. The, the sacking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, when Rome kind of quashed the uh, Jewish rebellion. Um, elsewhere in Luke, if we can go on um, to the to the next one, as he, this is this is closer to the to, to the story that we've been um, looking at today. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, "If you, if even you had only known in this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes." The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground 
you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on, on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I think Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. And he's seeing it as traumatic and difficult and painful and agonizing. And I think Jesus is so courageous in this place. He's looking over Jerusalem and it, 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 there will be every reason to turn back, every reason to turn back. But he goes into it. I, I, I sense knowing clearly, expecting that he's going to die. I wonder if really knowing what's on the other side of that, but being resolutely committed to the way of love, resolutely committed to the way of nonviolence, resolutely committed to the way of peace. And he doesn't give up. And that's his invitation to us. And he is, he is savior because he never gave up on love. And he's true to his word. If we look in John, John's gospel, Jesus says, um, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will, re you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his, his love. I've told you this uh, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's about as extreme as it gets. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business is. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from you, my father, I have made known from, for every, sorry, we can go back, go back one. Ah, you get the gist. Um, let's stick on this one. Okay, thank you. Um, for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Okay, Jesus lays down his life. That's what makes him savior. Um, and then he, he also says this, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that has eternity to it, right? Fruit that's everlasting, fruit that's, that's of heaven, um, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Um, let's look at the next one, because I, this is where I think it, all, it, it, it gets connected. Jesus answered, so this is back in jo uh, John 4. We're wrapping up here. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water, I give them. Whoever drinks Jesus's way, Jesus, what Jesus offers, love, sacrifice. Whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life. This is, this is what I don't know what happens when we die. I'll, I'll be honest. But... I'm confident that death is not the end, that we can live actually this eternal life now, and it transcends death. Jesus was resurrected into this life. You could touch him. He ate things. He was, he, there was a physicality to it. It was a different kind of life, though, a different kind of reality, because he also just appeared out of nowhere. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's different. But it's in this reality, and this is the reality in which we're called to live like this. And I think this is why this saying is so powerful, because that's, it's so hard to live like that. But Jesus is saying to us, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, we can join with Jesus in reconciliation, in redemption, in healing, in making the world whole. It's going to cost us, and it's difficult. And it's, when, you know, when I'm afraid... When I'm facing fear, I become anxious and hateful and, and, and defensive and at times vicious. To actually let go of all that and just love is hugely challenging. But that's 
what Jesus is doing for us. That's where Jesus is meeting us. And so what we're going to do now, and it may be the band, we're just going to close out the service with a meditation. Um, uh, we, we, um, Amanda, we won't read that scripture. Okay, we're just, we're just, we're going to um, close with a meditation on these words where Jesus, um, uh, the, the words actually that Jesus responds to. So Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me, joining with me in this way of love in this kingdom. Um, but that's a response to the criminal saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there's a heart cry there that I feel like I can totally identify with. And it's not just, Jesus, would you get me into heaven, you know, through the back door or something at, at this point? It's, 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 I don't think that's what it's about. It's just like Jesus. He's seen Jesus for who he is. And it's like, can I be like you? Can, can I be part of this thing? I mean, he's, he has a vision, I think, at this moment of vulnerability of the reality of Christ. And it's like, Jesus, I want to be part of this. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So we're going to sing a, a chant, uh, um, which is sim- very simple. It's just, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, maybe we can just put the lights down a little bit and just have this as a meditation and a heart cry of ours that we could live that life. The band are going to lead us in it and then we'll, we'll close out with our final song. Let's be in a place of prayer, of openness, of vulnerability um, with the presence of Jesus right now. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me to your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me 
Please stand if you are able and join in singing the closing song.